several, uh, I think it was last year actually, that we had a chapel where we asked several people, faculty, staff, to come to the platform and to share with us what you and I would call a, a life verse. I don't really have a life verse. I haven't ever gotten into the, the habit of signing my name and signing a life verse under my name. I, I do once in a while. Uh, typically, I just sign whatever happens to be something that's impacting my heart at that particular time. But I've, I've never, like John, our president, signs 2 Corinthians 3.18 and has done that for years. And, and Bookman was sharing with me that he has a life verse, and it's actually in the book that I'm going to speak from this morning, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. And, other, and you may do that as well. I've just never really done that. However, if I were to pick a verse, a life verse, and typically when we do that, it uh, is a verse that somehow, uh, in a very special way, we can identify with, right? It says something more about us than it does about God. And if I were to have a life verse, I believe that my life verse would probably be Romans chapter 7, verse 15. Now, you go ahead and go to Colossians, but let me read you my, what I would consider to be a verse in the New Testament that I really have an easy time identifying with. It's one that you're very familiar with, I'm sure. It's in Romans chapter 7, verse 10, and Paul says very powerfully and pointedly, For that which I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. That's a verse I can identify with. He repeats pretty much the same thought in verse 19. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. I, obviously, as you can see, there's reasons that I wouldn't sign that under my name um, when I'm sending out correspondence and lose my credibility very quickly. But, but it really is a verse that I, that I can identify with. The songs that we sang this morning really answer the cry of my heart, which is, God, there is nothing more in life that I desire than to know you and to be like you. Uh, there is only one love that I have that is above my wife and above my children, and it's my love for God. But sadly, sometimes I see in me, and others see in me, and certainly more than anyone else my wife sees in me, a life that gives a lie to that desire expressed. I don't live the way that I want to live, and I practice the very thing that I hate. And so this verse is something that I, I can easily identify with. If you're, if you're a student of uh, New Testament at all, or maybe you're starting in your career as a student of the New Testament, you know that there is probably no passage in the, in the entire Bible about spiritual life that has been written on with more um, controversy than this passage in Romans 7. And the initial controversy that uh, surrounds this passage is the question as to whether or not Paul is in fact saved or is he an unsaved person in Romans 7? Who is the person talking? Uh, and, and the opinions vary, and they vary among people that are very godly and informed and educated and, and capable scholars. Uh, there is a very large contingency, and some in our own faculty, that believe that Paul is expressing the thoughts of his pre-regenerate life prior to salvation in Romans 7. There are others, our president included, that believe uh, that Paul is expressing the experience of a truly born-again person. 
And not only because I'm sensitive to tenure, but I also think that it's faithful to exegesis. I agree with the latter. Um, <laughs> although my integrity I'm so, is somewhat unquestioned at that point, I'm sure. But, but I do believe that Paul is expressing what is the experience of a genuine believer. And I think that you could agree with that. I think that you can find in you some experience and on a daily basis, no doubt, that uh, reflects Paul's words here in Romans chapter 7. You know what it is like to love something and yet to do its opposite. You know what it is like to hate something and yet to find yourself engaged in it and in the enjoyment of it. And I think you probably know what that is like on a, on a fair, fairly regular basis. But what makes, I believe, uh, our understanding of Romans 7, that Paul, what makes us really come to the conclusion that Paul is a believer here, is not just the mere presence or the fact of his desire, uh, because I think, or the desire to change, because I think unbelievers desire to change. Uh, my mom desires to change. My dad desires to change. And I know that they are not believers. I've met many unbelievers that have a desire to be different than the person that they are, have a desire to be less selfish and less envious and less greedy and less covetous. Um, I know that. And so it's not just the mere fact that Paul desires to change that identifies him as a Christian. Uh, there is a person who has made millions of dollars doing seminars and producing tapes and writing books and doing television shows uh, with the promise that you can change and I can change. Uh, in fact, last counting, he makes something like $10 million per month with that message. He's written two number one bestsellers that have been on the New York Times bestselling list for years. And there's a chapter in one of his books titled uh, Awaken the Giant. And in that book, there's a chapter that says you can change anything now. And he's made millions of dollars offering people the opportunity to change. Well, predominantly, these are not believers. It's just people who are unhappy with life. And they don't want life to just change. They really would like to see change occur in them. And I think that's a very common human experience. I read in a new book that I just picked up that Dr. Stead recommended to me that in the last year, $5.4 billion were spent on some 60 million contact hours with counselors in the pursuit of change. So when we come to Romans chapter 7 and we find in Paul a desire to be different, you would have to say, well, that doesn't necessarily identify him as a, as a Christian because pretty much the garden variety person on the street wants to be different. It's a rare thing and if, to find someone that says, I, I like everything about me and would exchange nothing that I have or am with anyone else. The only person I ever heard express that <laughs> happened to be John Elway. And, uh, and I thought that was interesting. He certainly, uh, certainly has a lot to, to be uh, envied over, but I don't know that I would go so far or, or to think that he should go so far as saying that. So it's not just the presence of change, but it's the direction of Paul's desire that's important. And you know that, right? Because your friends who don't know Christ want to be different and want to be better, but the real test, the real mark of a Christian is not just that we want to be different, we want to change, but it's how we want to be different. It's the direction that we wish to change into that really defines us as truly regenerate people. And Paul expresses that very clearly as he moves through Romans 6, 7, and 8. In these words, in verses 5 through 8 in chapter 8, he says, 
For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, and neither is it able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul makes it very clear in this passage, as he does repeatedly in other passages, that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul wants to change, undoubtedly, but he wants to change in a very specific way, and that is he wants to become more like his Lord, Jesus Christ. He wants God to find him pleasing. He wants to be someone who emulates the very character of God in all that he is and all that he does. So the surest mark of a genuine believer is an overwhelming concern to enjoy God. Did you hear that? The surest mark of a truly saved person is this overwhelming concern and focus of life to enjoy God. That's what you were created to enjoy, God, and that's what I was created to enjoy, God. And there's a day coming that we will experience unending, uninterrupted enjoyment of God in heaven. That's who we are in regeneration. David expressed very much the same words in Psalm 62, verse 3, when he said that thy loving kindness is better than life to me. There is nothing in life that holds even a, a flicker of a flame in comparison to the to the overwhelming burning of my soul, and that is to enjoy you and to know you and to fellowship with you. The desire to experience increasing likeness to our Lord is, is truly something only a believer can experience. We desire change because we know God. But even one step beyond that, God really wills for you and for me Genuine spiritual change. In the same passage in Romans, Paul says that we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And the good there is not the, the life that is favorable and enjoyable and comfortable. What he is really speaking about, which a subject which he has never left since Romans chapter 6 opened, is to be like God and to be in like being like him to please him. And in verse 28 of Romans 8, Paul makes it very clear that God through his sovereignty and his providence has orchestrated all of life so that you and I would be the people that God called us into his kingdom to be. He controls the universe and uses it as an instrument to bring about genuine spiritual change in your life and mine. It's there are no accidents. There are no incidental events. Nothing passes without God's gaze being upon it. There is nothing so minute in your life and mine that God isn't somehow wanting it to contribute to his goal for you and for me, and that is to make us like Christ. That even includes chapel last Friday, doesn't it? It includes your conduct in the dining hall. And in fact, Paul is so... Confident of this truth that in 1 Corinthians he says, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, I mean, there can't be anything more trivial than drinking 
going to the water fountain and, and just satisfying our thirst. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But in verse 29, he says more specifically in Romans 8, For whom God foreknew, he predestined to become conformed into the image of his Son. We desire to be like God. We desire change. But one step beyond our desire is an understanding throughout the Word of God that God wills for you and for me to change, to experience genuine spiritual character level change. We desire it. God wills it. And we could say lastly on the subject of change that our future holds it. There's coming a day that you and I will finally be and completely be changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. God will perform what he set out to do. It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. It's a part of your life history and mind if we know Christ. And just as it's been the history of every Christian that's gone before us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, Paul says, In a moment... You and I are going to be changed. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, John tells us in his words that we shall know him when we see him. Why? Because at that moment we shall be like him. Your future holds it. Not only does God will it and you desire it, but there's a day coming that God will totally and utterly and completely accomplish it. Well... If that's what you want, and if it's what God wills, and if it's what is waiting for us in the future, then when we come back to Romans chapter 7, we come back with even a greater sense of frustration and confusion and tension when we read the words of Paul, but between the already that God has accomplished in my life through redemption and the yet to be accomplished through glorification, I live right here. I live Monday mornings and Monday afternoons and Monday nights. And between the already accomplished fact of redemption and the yet-to-come glorification that awaits us in heaven is this life that many times gives a lie again to the cry of our soul. So we come back to Romans chapter 7. And we say, but God... I desire it, you will it, and it awaits me. But the very thing that I want and the very thing that I yearn for, I don't experience often. And I find tremendous comfort reading the Apostle Paul, particularly in Romans chapter 7, particularly given the fact that Romans chapter 7 falls within the broader context of the greatest theological treatise in the New Testament, the Gospel or the Book of Romans. Unarguably, Paul is the greatest theological mind outside of the Trinity to ever walk the face of the earth. Paul could plunge the depths of of religious experience and Christian experience uh, in a way that probably no other person could or would or did. And yet it is this person that when he pulls the camera, so to speak, away from Christ and away from other people that he is ministering to and focuses it upon his own heart, he tells us something about his own walk with God that is really quite encouraging to me. And that is that 
Paul is experiencing what I experienced on Monday morning. Paul is saying the same thing that, that I would like to say if God were to give me the wisdom and the, and the ability to articulate it the way the Apostle Paul could. And that is, I don't do what I want to do, and the very thing I hate, I do. And as Paul looked out among the churches that he both established and didn't establish but ministered to, the issue of genuine spiritual change really finds itself as the kind of the, the substructure to, to almost all of Paul's writings in the New Testament. He just continues to come back to that when he's ministering to his addressees. You cannot go into one of Paul's epistles and not find this subject and not find this tension. In Romans, as we said, it is very clear. In the church at Corinth, it is very clear. Paul there is addressing a church that he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 lacks no spiritual gift. This church is a church that books would be written about if, they, if it existed today. Seminars would be conducted round the clock, undoubtedly, by this church. But yet, in the midst of all of this giftedness and all of this, these resources of the church at Corinth, Paul has to come and instruct them on what it means to be genuinely spiritual in their daily walk. The same thing is true when he addresses the church again in 2 Corinthians. He again has to come to them and say, look at your lives, because your lives are out of sync with the, with the likeness of Jesus Christ that God has called you to into. The church at Galatian, Galatia is the same thing. Paul in that church has to admonish them for beginning in the spirit and then continuing in the flesh. He's not questioning their salvation. But what he is doing is, is, in a fashion that is parallel to Romans chapter 7, he is saying, I am not saying that you are not believers. What I am saying is, as genuine believers, as people who have experienced at least some measure of growth already in your lives, why is it that you are forsaking that and now following a pattern that is certainly inconsistent and, and out of sync with Christ's likeness? In Ephesians, it's the same thing. Paul says to that church and to the churches, the other churches that read that epistle, live a life that is worthy of the calling with which you were called. But there's one book in the New Testament that I think focuses upon this subject of genuine spiritual change more powerfully than I believe any other book in the, in the New Testament. And that is the book of Colossians. And that's where I want you to turn this morning. And, and, and I want to just, if you're not there, I just want to go through and... And I want to lift out of this book a few simple spiritual truths. Because in this book, the Apostle Paul offers that church, and through inspiration, us today, a couple of keys to genuine spiritual change. It is something that he yearned for and struggled with. It is something all of the churches in the New Testament yearned for as genuine believers, but struggled with. And it is something that I believe in, the, in moments of honesty, you and I would have to say that we experience as well. We desire to be like Christ, but it's not something that we are finding to, to come about in our lives. But look at, look at Colossians chapter 2, first of all, though. Before he gets to those two simple keys to genuine spiritual change, he has to address a, something that is uh, not helpful to spiritual change. And that seems to always be the case, isn't it? 
as we talk about what it means to be like our Lord and to follow our Lord, uh, you and I have to kind of peel off all of the false teaching and wrong ideas and, and empty things before we can move on to that which is really transforming. And this church is no different. The Apostle Paul, when he addressed them on the subject of being like Christ and emulating the, the Lord in their very daily lives, he had to say, now, first of all, before I tell you what to pursue, let me tell you what you need to, to get rid of and what isn't going to help you. And he does that in chapter 2. Look at verse 8 quickly as we just go through this as we get to chapter 3. In verse 8 he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men and according to the elementary principles of the world, rather according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here to this church is, first of all, don't rely upon superficial external modifications as a means to genuine spiritual change. And somehow they've been drawn into that. And I think I understand a little bit about how that probably came about in that they were so desperate in their desire to be like the Lord. They were certainly born again. Turn to page, page back to chapter 1. Paul has already said, For this reason, since the day we heard of you, heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, verse, verse 9, I'm sorry, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding. In verse 3, up above that, he says, We give thanks to God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith, verse, faith, verse 4. Paul's not questioning their salvation. This is a group of genuinely born-again people who want more than anything else to be like Christ, just like you and just like me. That they were following after legalism. They wanted so much to be like the Lord that they were willing to try anything to be different, to change. And that desire and their frustration in the absence of real change made them vulnerable to false answers that were not answers at all. And what they found themselves doing is trying to reorder the out, out, outer man, the externals, to change the, the decks on the, or the chairs on the deck of the ship. And Paul has to say to them, now, before we can move on, let me just remind you that what I'm talking about is not external modifications of life. Just to do something outwardly does not mean that real change is taking place. Then he moves on in verse 20, jump down to verse 20 of chapter 2, and said, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, Things that are destined to perish in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom. And what he is saying here is, it is easy sometimes for us in our desire to be like God to be drawn into relying upon externals, legalism, to modify the outward life. And secondly, it is easy sometimes for us to be drawn into just doing that which is socially acceptable. In other words, finding what pleases the greatest number of people and the in the fellowship that I find myself in and just carry that out. It's sort of a subcategory of legalism, locally applied or specifically applied to a context. And Paul is really 
letting us know before he moves on that a person who looks good outwardly and a person who is accepted socially among his peers or her peers isn't necessarily someone who's experiencing in their soul genuine spiritual change. And Paul has to make sure that they understand that. And it's as though he has to kind of break through some crust to get to their heart before he can offer the, the little morsels of spiritual truth, isn't it? But the other observation that I draw from this uh, introductory section in chapter 2 to spiritual change is that they're doing something that I have found myself doing and relying upon. I want to, to be someone who knows Christ and, and I find myself drifting into just ordering the outward man. Just going through the motions. Just being faithful to a schedule. Just carrying out my, my obligations in, in a timely and orderly fashion. And the real damning effect of legalism is not only does it have no power to really change you deeply in your heart, but it hides the absence of change in your heart. And it hides it from the very people that really could help you with genuine change. And those are the people that are around you who are your friends in Christ. And this was the case in the church at Colossae and is also, I think, the case in in many of our experiences today. But then he moves into chapter 3. He said, well, if this doesn't work, and this isn't reminiscent of genuine spiritual change, what is? And he just offers to us two very simple, yet profound, spiritual truths that are keys to genuine spiritual change. This is a, this is a rich passage. It's quickly becoming one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Next to Romans chapter 7. Verse 1, if then you have been raised up with Christ, let's just read the first few verses in this chapter, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He has just left the subject of what doesn't advance spiritual change to move into the subject of what does. Verse 2, set your mind on things above and not things that are upon earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now, verse 8, you also... Put them aside, all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self and its evil practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one that created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is all and in all. In this passage, Paul lays out to these believers and to us two simple keys to genuine spiritual change, to becoming like the person that we desire to be like, our Lord. And here they are. Number one, the first key to genuine spiritual change, gang, and you know this, and this is nothing new, but this is, again, the words of Paul. It begins with a right focus of the mind. 
That is the subject of the first four verses of chapter 3. A right focus of the mind. And he breaks that down into a couple of ways in the first four verses. And as he opens up the chapter, he says, If then you have been raised up with Christ. The focus of the mind that Paul is talking about begins with a right spiritual self-conception. If, and it's not if conditional here, but really can be translated since, or therefore, since you are a person that has been raised up with Christ. You could reword that and say, since you are a spiritual new man, you have been united with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection, and you are a complete new person. What he's doing before he gets into the exhortations of chapter 3 and the imperatives, he's saying, before we do that, let me just come back and remind you who you are. Because spiritual growth begins with a right self-conception. And we need to understand who it is that we are in Christ. He's done that uh, in another, actually in several other places in the New Testament. Probably the one that you're most familiar with is, is again in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 3, Paul again says that we have been raised up with Christ. We have died with him in his, in his uh, judgment upon sin. And in our union with Jesus Christ, you and I have been raised to live a new life and we are now free from sin. Now if we've been, verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we shall, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. He says, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. In verse, look at verse 11, even so consider yourselves. Paul is saying, if you're really going to have victory over sin in an everyday fashion, then it's going to begin with an understanding of who we are in Christ. And the key understanding that he's really after here is the reality that in Christ, you and I have died to sin. Now, does that seem strange to you? As I thought through that, I thought, he surely just means guilt there, doesn't he? I have died to the guilt of sin. But that would put a meaning on the words of Paul that would be foreign to him. That's not what Paul means. He really means you and I have died to sin. And in Romans chapter 6 and in Ephesians chapter 4, he makes it clear that our spiritual self-conception leads us to the conclusion that we have no problem with the mastery and being under the slavery of sin any longer. It is no longer our master. We do not have to obey its promptings and its temptations. It's so complete, in fact, Paul uses the physical analogy of death and resurrection. We have died to sin. You're never going to go on in the Christian life unless you really get a hold of that truth. Sin is no longer our master. Christ has dethroned it and cast it off of the seat of royalty and and dominion and, and, has, and has cast it out of our lives completely and forever. Sin is not our master. We're a completely new person. I, I asked um, the guys that do the multi-image to, to put a slide up so that you could just visualize that because Paul in 
Colossians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 6 and then again in Romans chapter 5 lays the foundation of our self-concept in Christ before he ever goes on to exhort us to live like Christ. And whenever you find him saying, live this way, before he ever gets to, to those words, he backs up and says, but before you, before you do something, let me remind you who you are. And if you want to uh, really study a very, a very key passage in this regard, look at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. Because those verses make it very clear that we're not an old man and a new man. I don't know if you've been taught that. I don't know if that's something that, that is uh, a part of your theological training or your, your education of the Bible. But the Bible does ne- never indicates that you and I are both at once old and new. We are one person at a time. Before salvation, we were old men and women. We lived under the reign of Satan. In fact, John chapter 8, verse 44, makes it very clear that Satan is our father, and we, in other words, do his will. And we have no freedom to do otherwise. We sin because we must sin. We think that we have freedom, and we think that we're in control of our lives, but that's not, in fact, the case at all. We're slaves of Satan, and we do his will. We're slaves of sin. Romans chapter 6 that I just read makes it very clear that we are people who are under the mastering, the dominion of sin. We're spiritually dead. And the things that really characterize our lives is our darkness and deception. That's who we are as old men. But then in Romans chapter 5 and 6 and Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, Paul says, but in salvation, we cease to be old men and we are now new men. We are now ruled by Christ. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, We are now slaves of righteousness. And we are dead to sin. These two circles don't overlap. They're completely, and that's why we put them on two separate screens and spread them out, so that you would have no question of the fact that spiritually you are a new person. See, that's the truth that Paul's getting at in Colossians chapter 3. He says, if you're really going to experience genuine spiritual growth, you have to begin with an understanding of who you are in Christ. And who you are in Christ and is the same person that I am in Christ, and all believers are in Christ, and that is a new person. Now, if you'll bring up the, the next slide, the scriptures are very clear that there is a lifestyle that is consistent with the new person, and there's a lifestyle that is consistent with the old person. Right? And I just chose a few words that sort of gave you a brief description of those those lives. But the last slide that I want to bring up is, is the one that really gives us trouble. Because what you experience and what I experience and what Paul addressed repeatedly in the New Testament is the reality that while we are new men and not slaves to sin, we find ourselves living as though we still are old men. Though we are not. We choose to live like the person that we cease to be. And that's why you and I find ourselves in the turmoil and the tension of life that Paul describes in Romans 7. So when Paul wants to deal with this problem, what he does is he backs up and he says, well, wait a second, let's get a real grip on who we are in Christ and be reminded of our spiritual self-concept. Because if you're going to shed sin off of your life, you're going to have to understand that it has no mastery in your life. 
it has no control over you. The reason that you and I engage ourselves in carnal pleasure is because that we choose to live like the old man, the person that we are no longer. And that's why Paul, if you go back to, and you can drop that off, if you go back to Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, before he says anything else, the opening words of Colossians chapter 3 is very, are very clear. If or since you have been raised up with Christ. He is saying the very thing that I just said on these slides. Because you are a new man. Romans chapter 6 verse 11. Reckon yourself to be this kind of person. Focus your mind on a right self-concept. As you study the subject of change outside of the Church of Christ, one of the things that's really popular right now is this thought that, that it's hopeless to change. It's just hopeless. We commit adultery, according to an article that's in one of the major news magazines this last month, because it's built into our genetics. We're alcoholics because we, we were born alcoholics. We commit sins of, of homosexuality because we were biologically bent to do that. And the trend right now in the world is to really leave us with a, a real sense of hopelessness. We cannot do anything other than sin. And you know, really at one level I have to say there's some integrity there because outside of Christ that is true. But Paul's point in Colossians 1 that as a new man and in Christ it is not true. You sin not because you have to or you must or you have no other alternative. You sin because you choose to, and so do I. So genuine spiritual change begins with the right focus of the mind, specifically a right self-concept. And then he goes on to say, since you are a person who is a new man, again, as the, as the slides demonstrated, live in a way consistent with that newness. The second aspect of a right focus of the mind is a right occupation of the heart. Not only to be a person who understands who you are in Christ, but to fill your heart and mind with those things that, that really remind you and are emulations of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's very practical here. Paul is not trying to just leave us somewhere up in the, in the theological cloud. He's saying, look, as you come down to your everyday life, look in your world and find those things that really do not speak of the holiness and the majesty and the glory and the grace of God and get rid of them. But what's really interesting, if you look at the verse, he says, raised up with Christ, seeking the things above, where Christ is seated, at the right hand of the Father. Verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on the things on earth. The language there is really not a comparison in verse 2 between those things which are morally pure and impure. What he's really comparing are those things which are Temporal and eternal. He's saying there are some things in your life that are just, uh, they're not morally wrong, but they just fill up space on your, on your brain. Space that could be used for thoughts about God. Now, I know you don't have a lot of opportunity here because of the logistics of being at our college on, if you live on campus because we don't have a lot of televisions around but we do have radios and other ways to, to kind of let your mind just sort of veg 
And what Paul is saying here, you know, it's one thing to say, turn off the program or the item that is morally impure. But he's saying, you know, there's another, there's another danger to just sitting in front of a television. And even contemporary studies have verified this. And the danger is that it takes up space that could be used more profitably on something else. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying even those things which are morally neutral, find those areas and find those times and fill them up with Christ. As a, as a project, a personal project this summer, I, I ordered a bunch of tapes from around the country from different men that uh, I respect and have been blessed by their ministry, and I put them in my car. And I identified there's one time that, that I can see, according to this passage, that I really let my mind focus on things that aren't immoral and aren't impure, but are just neutral, just earthly. I mean, I... I uh, I like Reba McIntyre, and I like Garth Brooks, and I like Vince Gill, and and, uh, and I like all these guys. And these, I mean, I like anything with rhinestones on it. You know, I just it's just it's in my blood. And while there's some of that some of that stuff is just garbage, most of it is just neutral. I mean, if I wouldn't be embarrassed to to have our president ride in the car with me and put on my CD and listen to him, and I mean. It's just neutral. So I thought, you know what? I spend a lot of time in my car. I'm going to find a way to, to take the things that are upon earth and I'm going to replace them with something with Christ. So every time I got in my car, I plugged in a cassette tape rather than listening to Vince. I listened to Alistair and some other preachers and John and other friends. And, I, and then at the same time, I said, Lord, there's, there is one sin in my life that I have the toughest time getting victory over. So I'm going to have two projects this summer. One, I'm going to be faithful to Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. And two, I'm going to ask God to help me conquer this particular sin. It was just remarkable. That some, since the beginning of that project to this very day, I continue to find it easy to walk away from that sin. And that's what Paul's talking about. A right focus of the mind. To find those things that maybe are not morally impure, but just those things that don't bring our thoughts into heaven, is what Paul is describing. The right focus of the mind. And then the last thing, the, other, the second truth he says, and it's very practical and very, very much common knowledge, I believe, in, in chapter 3 of Colossians. If we're to grow, we're not only to have a right focus of the mind, but we're to have a right practice of life. And, and Paul just simply goes on to say, there are certain things that we must kill... And he uses the word mortify. He says in verse 3, For if you die and your life is hidden with Christ, what's he doing? Wait a second, let's go back to your self-concept. Now having gone back to your self-concept, verse 5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. The word there is really the word to kill, to kill utterly, to mortify. And what Paul is saying is, and he lists out several vices, he's saying in your life, in your everyday life, don't do anything to either exercise or to nourish these sins. If you can find anything in your life that gives these vices an opportunity to be exercised or even to keep them alive, rid yourself of them. Starve them out. Kill them utterly. Eliminate anything from your world, anything from your heart, anything that conjures up desires and, 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 and emotions and thoughts in your mind that would draw you into these spiritual vices. 
Paul's saying, kill them. Utterly kill them. Starve them. 